0: Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. I've got some exciting news for you guys that I wanted to get you before we jump into the interview that I've got for you guys. And that's the fact that we're going to be switching the host for our podcast. So we're going from the previous host where all of these episodes have been to another host called Anchor. And so with that is going to come a little bit of a shift for those of you guys that subscribe to this podcast or for those of you guys that usually grab these just check out the description and then decide whether you want to download it and give it a listen or not what this means for you is that you're going to search for the podcast and you may not find it where you normally would so what I have done is in the show notes for this episode I've put a link there where you can go and we're double posting for the next few weeks just in case uh, so you can find it where you normally get it. But we'd like you to transition over to the new location of the podcast, which is going to be on Anchor. So if you would just go into the show notes and find that link, go to it. And then go ahead and subscribe. Once we phase out the old hosts that we have, then you wouldn't miss any beat you wouldn't miss a beat. And you wouldn't miss any previous episodes either that you might want to grab and share with your friends or give another listen. Another really exciting thing and part of the reason why we're doing this is because there's a lot of these small episodes that I've called Mayito minutes that were not available in the other place and they're gonna be available now. So when you go on there and subscribe to that new feed, you're gonna notice instead of the hundred and four, hundred and five episodes that currently are on the channel, you're gonna notice there's gonna be closer to 200 of them. And it's gonna include a lot of those Maito minutes, which I think many of you will enjoy and I think you guys will grab some value from. So. I lastly want to say this, thank you for those of you that have been faithful and loyal to listening to the podcast. I really appreciate you guys. If you could leave a review or a comment or something, wherever you get your podcast to get this out to more folks, but thank you very much for partnering with me. Without further ado, here's the interview we've got for you for this week with Alex Hutchinson. I hope you guys enjoy. Thank you for tuning into the A Champion's Mind podcast. I'm your host, Mario Ariabe. Today, I've got guest Alex Hutchinson. Alex, thank you so much for giving us some of your time and being on the podcast.
1: Well, thanks, Mario. It's great to be here.
0: Awesome. Can you uh, just introduce yourself? Just tell the, the listener kind of who you are, what you do, all those fun things.
1: Yeah, sure. I, I guess I would uh, I would say my job these days I'm a I'm a science journalist, um, and more specifically, I'm a I'm an endurance science journalist, which is which is a title I kind of made up for myself because uh, for the last ten years I've been writing mostly about the science of Uh, endurance sports, endurance training and health and fitness, that sort of thing. So um, I've been a columnist for, I was a columnist for Runner's World for about five years. And these days I write mostly for Outside Magazine. And uh, again, with the focus on endurance, uh, my background comes from uh, being a competitive runner. I ran for the Canadian national team for about a decade as as a middle distance runner. And before I became a journalist, I was a I was a physicist, which doesn't actually have much to do with what I do now. But it, uh, you know, I did start out first decade of my career as a scientist. So it's kind of the the merger of those two interests, uh, science and endurance, that that created this sort of career path for me. And uh, I guess probably the main reason we're talking today is that I, I wrote a book uh, called Endure: Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance that came out in, in February, and it's kind of the it's the sort of summation of the last 10 years of stuff that I've been been of research that I've been looking into and writing about, and it tries to answer the question of what you know when you push to your limits, what is it that actually holds you back?
0: Yeah, speaking of limits, uh, I've read a little bit about let, let's talk a little bit about the book. Um, it, it took you n- nine years, correct, to write the book.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of it, it, that's a little misleading in that I, you know I wasn't just sitting at my desk for nine years uh, trying to figure out what, what to write. I was I was all that time I was working as a journalist uh, for Runner's World and outside and other other publications, writing about endurance and kind of using that journalism opportunity as a freelance journalist to. Uh, as an excuse to to get myself uh, sent to places around the world like South Africa and Switzerland and and the UK where I could talk to some of the really the the leading scientists and researchers looking at endurance. So I was doing that research and I was writing magazine articles along the way uh, for that whole time. But it was, yeah, I think it was 2009 that I first started to tell people I was interviewing, not just, hey, I'm writing an article, but hey, I'm writing a big book about endurance and I want to come to your lab. And I thought it would, I, I did, at that point, I thought it would be a couple of years. Uh, it, 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 it took a lot longer, and eventually I, I had to kind of just realize I'm not going to be able to have all the answers that totally explains what endurance is, uh, and if I'm going to wait for that, my book's not going to come out for a 100 years, so I decided I needed to just get going and write the book.
0: Yeah, well played, though, because it sounds like, like you said, it, it the, the book was always running in the background, uh, like you actively were sitting down and actually putting pen to paper so to speak uh not that we do that much anymore but but then all of the writing that you were doing all of the places you were visiting like that was you were putting you were putting content together for the book so yeah it sounds like it was no matter what you were doing it sounds like all of it was going towards hey at some point like this book is going to come out um and, uh, yeah, yeah, it was
1: it was very very conscious and very targeted. Like for instance, we you know one of the big trips I took was to South Africa to 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 hang out with Tim Noakes, who's a you know very uh, very influential and controversial uh, sports scientist in Cape Town. And it's you know these days with the, with the state of modern journalism, it's actually pretty hard to get a magazine to say yeah we're going to fly you around the world for an article. And so, you know, the way that worked out is I I told Outside Magazine, hey, listen, I I really want to go and, you know, do some research here. I will get myself to South Africa. I'll pay my own way to South Africa if you guys will pay for my expenses while I'm in South Africa and also, you know, pay me for an article there. And and they agreed to that. So And the reason I was willing to do that, I mean, that's, if, if you do that as a journalist, it's kind of a money-losing proposition if you're like, hey, I'm going to pay my own expenses to fly around the world. And then you make like 10 cents for your article. And you're like, oh, man, I, you know, I, I'm losing money writing the article. But because I was – even this was 2009, 2010, because I was consciously trying to uh, collect material for the book. Uh, I I felt that that was a good a, a good tactical move and and it was like it, it ended up being a, an, an important part of the book and I, so I was I was making those decisions all along like focusing what articles do I want to write I would think about well what do I need what pieces do I need to fill in for the book
0: Yeah that's neat I mean th- this goes along the line of uh, you know I talk a lot in, in the content that I put out about focus, right. And like the funnel was the book. So you're seeing everything through the eyes of the book and kind of what you want to write. And then you're going, okay, that's an experience I I would like to take on. Yes. I think it'd be good to go there. I think it'd be good to, 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 you know, rub shoulders with this person, ask this person questions, so on and so forth. And because because of that you're able to look past some of the i guess quote-unquote obstacles or difficulties in terms of man this is financially not really making sense but oh hey i'm looking at this through the lens of the book so therefore it makes sense in the bigger picture of you know at some point this is going to get published and i need this experience to enhance the uh the you know enjoyment that the person would get that's going to purchase and read the book um so (laughs)
1: Yeah for for sure and, and, and you know it, it's obviously it's a little bit cliched to say you know I learned so much from running about you know goal setting and long term planning and and all but it's it's totally true and it's and and I you know even at the time I could see the parallels that it's like the you know the sacrifices or the or the sort of long term thinking that's important for any d- developing any sort of athletic career or athletic you uh, meeting athletic goals it, it was definitely uh, very consciously on my mind as I w- as I was planning out this book that I was like I didn't want to just think about what's going to be good for me in the next six months or what's going to feel good right now. I, I-, I really wanted to, to think long term. And-, and you know in, in the end, I'm-, I- I'm really glad it worked out the way it did because I, you know, for sure I could have written a book in 2012 that would have had 80% of what-, what ended up in the book. Um, but it's it's that last 20% or maybe even, in a sense, that last 2% getting those extra details and just going the extra mile to make sure this isn't just the you know the, the book that I could write, the quickest book I could write. It's the best book I could
0: write. Well, and to let a little bit of the cat out of the bag about this book, if, if you would have published it in 2012, one of the coolest things to me, I'm a former runner myself, one of the coolest things to me about the book is the fact that you – you present the content and then you've got this story going at the same time with the quest for the sub two hour marathon, which you were there for. Um, so you have like firsthand experience on that. And you know, you published this thing in 2012 and that doesn't make it into the book. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm glad it got published when it did, because man, that was, uh, that was such a neat experience that you had. If you want to kind of walk, walk the listeners through kind of some of what you got to do out there and experience, that'd be awesome. Cause I mean, yeah, that was, that adds a lot of value to the book, in my opinion, when you put it next to a lot of the information, evidence, studies, and things like that that you present.
1: Yeah, it was, it was interesting. So the, the, the Nike, so Nike's Breaking Two Marathon, just for, for, for listen, any listeners who may not have uh, followed it, was, was, so May 2017, uh, they, they had this big, uh, race in Northern Italy at a special formula one racetrack trying to control all the variables. Uh, and, and Elliot Kipchoge who's the Olympic champion ended up running two hours, zero minutes and 25 seconds. So a really, really amazing performance, but they'd been building to it for a number of years. And the, the, the backstory there is that I, so I got a call in, I can't remember. It was maybe October of 2016 saying, uh, from my editor at runner's world saying, Hey, um, we've been offered this opportunity to go behind the scenes for this very, very special top secret project that Nike's working on for a couple of years. Do you want to, do you want to take this on? And I said, uh, basically no, I, 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 I don't because I have a book due at the end of the year and I, I, you know, I'm already up against the wall. I'm going to be late on my book deadline. So, uh, but you know, so I, at first I got an email from my editor saying, you know, can you, do you want to talk? And I, and the an email back, I was like, Look, my answer is going to be no, but let's talk anyway, just just so I know what you're, what, what I'm saying no to. Then he explained that it was going to be this two-hour marathon thing, and I was like, oh, uh. and 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 there were you know there were a couple of things going through my head. One is that I did a big project for Runner's World in 2014 on the prospects for a two-hour marathon, what it would take, what the physiology would would, would what physiology would be involved, and I predicted at the end of that piece that it would that the two-hour marathon would happen in around 2075. So now Nike's saying they want to do it in 2017. And I'm thinking, well, you know, obviously one of us is going to look kind of stupid here. So so there was that. But also there's like, no, I'm trying to write this stupid book that I've been working on for 10 years. I I can't afford to spend months, you know, traveling around following this Nike project. But then, you know, I thought about it and it's like, who am I kidding? Like, I can't turn down the opportunity to – uh you know, go behind the scenes with some of the top scientists in the world and some of the top runners in the world, guys like Elliot Kipchoge, have a chance to see them really try and put all into practice all the things that I've been thinking about and writing about, all the sort of what does it take to optimize your performance? And then finally, the the, the, the sort of penny dropped and I realized, and man, I could maybe put some of this in my book. Maybe this would, it would give, it, give it some narrative thrust. So so my, my book was officially due. Like my contract, I was supposed to f- submit my book in January of 2017. Um, I got an extension to like March of 2017, but the race still wasn't till May of 2017. So then, after my first draft was finished and I'd submitted it, then I went back and I was like, "Okay, this stuff is too good. I need to I need to p- rewrite the draft to, to get the Breaking Two stuff in because it really does." Uh, Kind of give flesh and blood to some of these abstract ideas about pushing your limits that that I was thinking and talking about. So the timing was perfect. It, 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 I was I was very lucky because I, I I agree. I think it gives something extra to the book beyond the theory. Um, but I, I I definitely couldn't have planned that any v- advance. And, and if they'd held the race, you know, like three weeks later, there's no way I could have gotten it into the book because we had already committed to a publication schedule.
0: Yeah, yeah. So when we look at the sub two and you know, Kipchogi's just barely off. I mean, in the span of 26.2 miles, which is a distance of a marathon, 26 seconds is like nothing. Um, but like, what was, what did you leave that experience with? Did you leave that experience with some answers to some questions that you had or did they create new questions? I mean, I think I know the answer to this question that I'm asking, but I mean, when you left there, and you're like, okay, it's over. You know, all this product and development has been done, and we pulled the best runners, and we literally tried to control for every factor that we could. I mean, what was what was the outcome of it? Minus minus the result, obviously, the time, right, that, that he ran. Um, but beyond that, kind of underneath the surface of that, what uh, what do we now know that we didn't know, or do we not do we know less now than we knew when we started? <laughs>
1: yeah, so, you know, th- this is a, obviously a, a, a big, long, complicated question. But um, as I was covering the project, I would say I spent a lot of time focusing on stuff like Nike's new vapor fly shoes, which are supposed to make you 4% more efficient, uh, the, the effects of drafting. They spent a lot of effort organizing a sort of arrowhead formation of six pacemakers to reduce air, uh, wind resistance. Uh, and the you know the design of the course, all these sorts of very physiological neck down uh, ways of getting faster, and, there, and and that stuff mattered. That that made a big difference, I think, to the uh, to to the eventual performance. But as time went on, and I had a little more time to reflect on you know exactly what your question is. What do we what do we take away from this? What's different? What's what you know what is it that allowed Kipchoge to run this time that was two and a half minutes faster than the the world record? And I ended up thinking that it had a a lot more to do with Kipchoge himself and his, his mindset um, which was very sort of noticeably like he was really focused on the idea that he was refusing to accept that there are limits, that, that he's, he was confident in his belief that if he changed his, his mindset that he would be able to run two hours, stuff that sounded to me a little bit kind of, Uh, Touchy-feely, and and I I didn't take it seriously at first when I I was talking to him. But eventually, I was able to sort of connect that in my mind with all the stuff that I'd been writing about in the book. Because the last chapter of my book is called "Belief," and it's all about how uh, you know the thoughts in your head, uh, in a very concrete way, affect how you perceive the effort that you're putting out from your body and and that perception of effort is ultimately what dictates whether you're going to be able to keep going or slow down or speed up. And so, uh, weaving it all together, I, I now look back and I think one of the big things we learned there is that uh, for someone like Kipchoge, who who was very deliberate about taking care of his mindset and what the, you know the thoughts in his head, that that had as big an effect as, uh, as anything on his ability to go out there and and run what seems like such a ludicrous time. So I'll be really so you know. Sorry to ramble here, but it's, it is an interesting question. And, and I think, to me, like, one of the big questions coming out of that is, what does it change for everybody else that a human has run two hours, zero minutes, and 25 seconds? And I, my initial thought was, this is going to change what other pe- how other people are going to run, what times they think are reasonable to shoot for, and we're going to see some fast times in major marathons. Now, it's been a little over a year now. And we haven't seen any like new world records or anything like that. And I think part of that is most of the best marathoners in the world went to Berlin last fall because it's a fast course and it was pouring rain. It was a crappy day. Then in the spring, most of the best marathoners in the world went to, uh, to London where it was a very hot day. And again, no one could run a fast time. So we, this, is, and this is kind of the thing about the marathon. There's very few opportunities and the environmental factors make a big difference which is one of the reasons that one of the things with the breaking two project is they really went out of the way to remove those factors but it, in most marathons it's like you get a rainy day well it's like okay six months of training out the window so we're, we're going to see this fall meet what happens in berlin hopefully it'll get a good day and i still think that the the mere fact that, that someone like Kipchogi was able to run in an optimized race this fast time is going to change how other people approach it so to that's kind of like the ultimate test of whether what i'm saying is it, you know has some 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 merit or whether it's just a bunch of words is whether whether other people are able to kind of catch or be infected by Kipchogi's belief in what's possible
0: yeah absolutely and If you, for for anybody who wants to do a deep dive, which I recommend into kind of what went into this breaking two, Pursuit. I mean, you know, uh, Alex has told us about the shoes, the V formation. I mean, folks, everything. There was a there was a launch window, like there is for for space shuttles. You know, where it's like, hey, we want to make sure the weather is like optimal. You know, um, so they controlled for a lot of things, right? And and controlling for all of that, you get a two hour flat twenty five second, uh, you know, marathon, which was you know two and a half minutes faster than the world record, but then. You know, Berlin takes place in the quote-unquote, you know, real world, not not so much of a factory setting like the Breaking 2 and, you know, London's going to happen in that same environment and some of these faster marathons, Chicago, Chicago right? So... Now you've got real world, and now you've got factors like, oh, hey, the the race is going to happen on this day, and whatever hap- whatever you've got to deal with on this day. I mean, I had a I had an athlete of mine who ran Boston this year, and <laughs> he had a time yeah. he was shooting. you know, he had a time he was shooting for, and it was like, you know, hey man, I realize that like before I got out of the hotel that morning, that time was probably not going to happen because I was just happy to be alive in that weather and get through the marathon. Um, but but this brings up an interesting point that I want to kind of kick around with you, Alex, is. Um, I wrote down in my notes because I am a, by the way, I'm a running geek. Uh, I ran in high school and in college and I studied runners. I just I know you know a lot of running history and stuff like that. The name I wrote down was Ron Clark. Um, yeah because because you know so here we have Kipchoge fast like like boom two out you know two hours flat, 25 seconds, blazing speed right And I'm thinking Ron Clark, you know a guy that set multiple world records, right? But then you go to a guy that maybe wasn't as fast, uh, but a guy that just went... When you got him in championship-style races where, you know, hey, the winner's just going to get... I mean, we're passing out medals, you know? Typically, the times are slower in those championship-style because people are racing for place versus time. And then you have guys that dominate that, but then they maybe don't ever run the lightning-fast time that you might see from a Kipchoggi or a Ron Clark. So... What's the? I mean, are those two diff, Do you think are are those two kind of different mindsets? Are there two different things that play there that that makes one athlete more prone to hey head to head battle? Like I'm good at those, but then when you set me up and I've got to run fast, you know, th- there I, I I'm I'm less apt to do that.
1: So I, I, first of all, I'll say I I totally agree that there are some people who are best who are really well suited to pushing themselves to to running even pace at the limit the whole way other people who are just masters of head-to-head competition and, and, I, and i'm not making this a, a value judgment because it's you know sometimes you see people who are like oh that guy was so cowardly he wasn't you know he, he didn't uh you know sprint until the end of the race it's like you know what it's like people are motivated by different things and they the, there's different you know ways of pushing yourself and different approaches to racing and and You know, it all depends on whether your goal is time or place. Now, I will say, there's there, it's the the truth is seldom as quite as simple as as the sort of general example might seem. Like Kipchoge, we should say, like okay, he was amazing in this Breaking Two race, running basically by himself for most of the race. But that's not to say Kipchoge isn't also an amazing head-to-head runner. I mean, his first his his most famous race that that brought him to fame as a 17-year-old was winning the World Championships. 5,000 meters over a couple of the greatest runners in the world. I think it was uh, um, uh, Hisham al Garouj and uh, Kennedy Bekele. He outkicked them in a in a head-to-head race, like he outsprinted them. So he he's he's ready to outkick and, and and outsprint people. And and you know Ron Clark even he you know as a junior he was I think the Australian junior record holder for the mile. You know he he had speed and 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 he didn't manage to do as well in things like the Olympics um but i was actually looking at ron clark's training uh, just a couple of weeks ago or a week or two ago for an article on periodization and it was just fascinating to hear some quotes from ron clark where he trained basically the same almost every day like you know you know a morning run afternoon run same pace for all runs and then saturday might be a longer run uh, his only speed work was basically races um and and it, you know his idea was throughout the year The every every day should basically be the same, and any any deviation was accidental. So his his goal was that every day should be hard. He he would go out there and run you know five minute mile pace, uh, in the morning five minute mile pace in the afternoon. He was never doing seven minute mile pace. He was never doing four minute mile pace. And so one of the big ideas with periodization is that you're you're building to a peak, and you're you're going to be at your best on you know the day of the Olympic final. Well, Clark. Didn't really believe in that, and it's hard to say whether that's the reason he never managed to win an Olympic gold medal, um, despite being you know a minute faster than or over ten thousand meters than than some most of his competitors. Um, but I, I would I would include that in there that there's so, and and maybe that comes back to mindset too that his his but both the mindset and the physiology of the way he trained was like let's just get out there every day and try and be as fit as possible as opposed to let's build towards a big peak. Let's let's point our physical and emotional energy towards being the best on one specific day rather than 365 days a year. And I, th- I think it's telling that modern athletes, for the most part, don't follow Clark's approach. They, they, they do understand that you can't be equally good every day of the year. You have to choose some days when you're going to be ready to give a little bit extra.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good point. You're talking and I'm thinking... You know, here in the United States, we had Bill Rogers, you know, and Bill Rogers was a guy that did pretty much the same thing all the time and he enjoyed a lot of success. But, uh, but then, you know, the other guy that I've got on my mind was I listened to a podcast, I can't remember where it was, but with, uh, with somebody that was talking about, oh, it was Steve Magnus's podcast and he was talking about, um, He talked with Alan Webb about his training when Alan Webb ran like 349, I want to say, in the mile. He was the fastest miler in the world that year, I think. Um, Definitely the fastest American for that year. And he was talking about his training, and it was like the polar opposite of Ron Clark. It was literally his coaches telling him... Okay, these are the intervals, and here's your rest. And I really don't care what you do during your rest. You can sit down next to me if you want, but then when it's time to get on the line, I need the times to be the times. And, you know, his recovery runs were pedantic in terms of pace and how easy they were. Um, And, you know, I've heard stories of like out in the Rift Valley, you know, the Kenyans as well, you know, and, and the East Africans, like when they do recovery days, it's like Americans will get over there and be like, are we, are we running today? Like we're, we're like jogging, but then it's like, yeah, because the next day you have no idea what you're in for. You know, these guys are racing. Um, so yeah, I think the the training has evolved over time. Uh, I don't know how much, I I think I, I would just theorize that I think some of that is also just the amount of information that we have available. I mean, you know, like it's, it's, You know, like somebody like you writing for for outside, like we have access to, oh, cool. I can jump on here. And when I read your articles, like I get a snapshot of scientific articles that are published in journals that I don't have access to. But now I do because of the Internet, because, you know, that information is readily available. So I think because of that, um, people are getting faster and and the training is evolving and becoming more scientific. But and I'm going to kind of pivot here. Um. What I personally like about your book, and what I like about a lot of the stuff that's just coming out, is like you said, it's inconclusive, right? I mean, like, do we really, you know, have answers to some of these burning questions that we want? And, like, how far off are we from getting these questions? You know, I read an article about that you put up about emotional intelligence, and it's like, oh, cool, we think this emotional intelligence is something. I mean, we can kind of quantify somebody takes some kind of a of a of a test or or a questionnaire they fill it out and then oh look the results show that that you know has some kind of a role in performance but okay let's measure emotional intelligence it's like okay well let's not because we don't really necessarily know how to do that very effectively at this time um so what would you say i mean you know somebody reads your book and What's the takeaway for the athlete? Is it encouraging that we don't have these answers? Is it should it be something that's depressing that we don't have these answers? Because I'm sitting here going, I want to be as fast as Kipchoge, but you're not really telling me like what I need to do to get there or how I can quantify it, right? So what what would you say to that?
1: Yeah, so and not surprising to me at all is that one of the pieces of feedback I've sometimes got from the uh, from people who've read the book is. Yeah, it was great, but boy, I wish I wish there was some more specific, like you know, three things you should do to <laughs> to uh, to enhance your endurance. And I, I totally get that. Like, I you know, like I said, I'm I, I'm an athlete too, and I certainly was very serious about trying to find ways of getting faster during my you know more serious competitive days. And you know, you can tell me how many angels can dance on the head of the pin, and that's fascinating. But I want to know what should I do in my workout tomorrow, um, <laughs> and, and and that's that's fair, but. I made a conscious decision early on in writing the book that I wasn't going to try and force practical applications out of. I just wanted to explore what the nature of limits were going to be. And the moment I, the moment you start trying, if if I if I had said, okay, I'm going to end every chapter with three practical takeaways, which is something I considered, because obviously, like I think there's practical stuff scattered throughout the book, but the moment I start to say, okay, I'm going to have every chapter end with uh, you know, here's the three key takeaways, it affects, it, 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 it makes me want to impose more certainty than there really is. And so I want it to be true to the fact that we don't know about, about how much we don't know and just kind of let the instead of trying to bend the evidence to fit some advice that I want to give, I just want to say, here's what we know. And here's what we don't know. Now, is that good news or bad news? Well, <laughs> it's bad news to those of us who want to beat Elliot Kachogi because uh, I, I don't have the answer on how to beat him. Um, I kind of got to the end and you know, I thought about this a lot as I was writing it, and I kind of got to the end and decided, you know what, I I'm relieved that there isn't some formula that can predict exactly what my my limits are, which was the basic question that I started out with the book is like, how do I know I you know I ran such and such a time. What's my ultimate limit? How do I know that? How do I know if I put got everything out of myself on a given day? And it's just we don't know that and, and, and I think that is good news in a sense. Because how boring would you know I, I, would it be to, to, to know exactly what I could run on any given day? I, it, I would kind of lose the interest in trying to find out if I, if, if I could know from, from a formula. So to me, that's kind of one of the great things about endurance sport, both from a personal perspective, finding out, hey, Sunday morning I'm going to go to a race. How, how am I going to do? What, how, far, how hard am I going to be able to push myself? And also even as a spectator, even like watching – Olympics or a marathon or whatever. Um, you know, it's never nothing's ever a foregone conclusion. And it's 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 i kind of like the fact that we don't know, we don't understand exactly what it is in Elliot kipchoge that allows him to beat the other guys who nominally have just as good physiology as him. Like going back to the Breaking Two thing, uh, there were three runners in the Breaking Two project, uh Elliot Kipshogi's Ersene Tedese. And De Sissa, all very good runners. If you went by the lab tests, because they did a ton of lab testing to select these runners, uh, Kipchoge was the weakest link. He was not the guy who was going to, you know, be the fastest marathoner. But he had something else, which we don't yet know how to measure, that allowed him to beat the other two. So, uh, you know, I, I offer you know, a sincere apology to anyone who was who hoping to, uh, to to have the secrets to endurance. But, uh, but uh, to me, it's it's not such a bad thing. It's like, uh, I, I'm fine with not having all the answers. And I think it's kind of actually essential to the nature of the sport that there's some mystery there.
0: Yeah. I, a hundred percent. I'm with you. I, I I'm with you on that. Um, I, I wanted to throw this in there cause I forgot to mention it earlier, but, uh, so to add a little bit of, uh, Fun to the story, the, the Kipchoge narrative. It's like uh, I, I can't remember if it was you or somebody else that he ran a half marathon and he was just under an hour. Like he ran 59. I can't remember. I think it might have been 28 or something. And somebody was like, "Hey, uh, so you're getting ready for this Breaking Two thing, right? And uh, you're gonna have to do that again. Um, but you barely were able to do it once, just right now. So what's you know what's the deal? I mean, is the training gonna gonna change, or what are you gonna do to be able to get yourself there?" And he said, "No, the training will be the same. My mind will just be different." Um, and so, yeah,
1: that you know, that, that but, was that was what he told me the first time I met him. I think he had run fifty nine forty five in in Delhi, and yeah, and, and it was it was an answer that that uh, that on the surface, the first time I heard, it, I was like, "Well, that's you know, that's a terrible plan. That's not going to get you there." <laughs> but with with the benefit of hindsight, I look back and say, "Okay, there's something there. He was he's tapping into something important."
0: Yeah. And there, and there's something that this is what, this is what's cool to me. I, I, am with you again. I like it. I like that we don't have the answers because there's something there. What is it? I, I don't know. He just said it, but, but, but what is it? Like, can, can you write it down? Can you give it to me? Like, how did he get to that conclusion? Like, you know, what did he, you know, what did he eat for breakfast that makes him think like that? I mean, nobody knows the answer, right? Um, you know, it, it's like, I read your book once and I flew through that thing. I didn't even highlight cause I just wanted to keep reading and turning pages. But if I go read it again, I mean, it's nothing against your book, but it won't be as exciting to me because I already know some of the parts in the book and I already know how it goes. And so I agree with you. If we don't know the limits of human performance, which I, you know, we don't know because every day people do amazing things that we didn't think were possible. So if we don't know that, then that allows us to keep reaching, right? That allows us to keep researching and keep figuring out like what is it and keep trying to unlock this thing. What I say a lot is guys, it's not that we eventually put the key into the lock and the door opens. If we do that, if if that's all we're looking for, I think we're, I think we're doing it wrong. What's exciting to me is, Oh, Hey, look, this new thing came out. Awesome. Let me apply this thing or let me look at this thing from a different angle and let me figure out how it can maybe help me or not help me. Like, um, you know, I've heard it said a lot that, that, you know some of these athletes that that train for four years to get ready for the Olympics, or maybe these guys getting ready for you know breaking two in the marathon. Like it's this huge buildup, this huge crescendo, this huge training journey, diet, all this stuff, and then they get there and they do it, and they're kind of like a little bit let down because they thought it was going to be something that it wasn't, and they weren't prepared for that. And then they look back and go, man, you know what the fun part was? The fun part was actually getting ready and preparing myself for all of these things. Um, and and, you know, this was just kind of the, the test, the crucible. Um, but really and truly the fun was the journey. Um, and so I, I like the fact that I agree with you that we don't have answers and, uh, yeah, I mean, people want, you know, practical things to, to do. Hey, if you do these things, you're going to do this, but you know, um, we see it time and time and time again. I think that's part of the um, difference, I would say, between amateurs and professionals. One of the differences is that uh, amateurs just look to emulate somebody that's ahead of them, that's doing something that they've never done. And if they they feel that if they carbon copy that thing, that they will come out with the same results and the same metrics as that person. And professionals are able to go, okay, let, let me look at that. Hmm, that looks interesting. That looks like that might work. Um, but let me analyze it under the scope of here's who I am as a person and I know myself well enough to go. Yeah, I don't think that's a good idea for me. It might work for the next guy, but not for me. Or yeah, that's totally within my realm to do. I think it would help me. Um, so. You know, I, I don't know, in your experience writing for Run- Runner's World, I'm not sure about some of the mail that you got, but, you know, I'm sure that when you would maybe write articles, I mean, y- did you get people kind of writing in, you know, asking, hey, so what's the next thing if I do this, you know, or, or did you ever get any mail saying, hey, I did everything you said and I didn't get what I wanted? I mean, was, ever, <laughs> was that ever a thing?
1: Yeah, no one ever I sort of a- demanded their money back or anything like that, but certainly there uh, got a lot of messages asking like, okay, here's my situation, exactly what should I do? And and even more generally, like, writing a training column for Runner's World is, is a sort of, in a sense, it's like a, an impossible task because you're trying to say, you know, what should these 100,000 people do? And it's like, well, I don't know. I'd have to give 100,000 different pieces of advice. I, I I struggled with this. Like, when I started with Runner's World, I'd been writing about scientific research. Like, I, have a, I had a blog called Sweat Science, and they – in, in 2012, they invited me to move my blog over to Runners World, but they said we also want you to write a training column in in the print magazine. And I was like, well, I can move my blog over, but I don't know about a training column because, yeah, like this fundamental question of like, if the answer is what should these hundred thousand people do, or the question is, I, I, the answer is is very hard to 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 come up with. And of course. At a certain point, you have to just say, okay, well, you, you have to understand that you're giving general suggestions and you hope you're going to lead people to explore rather than say, here's the workout you should do. It's more, here's some questions you should ask yourself about. And and it, like you said, it's so individual. So like one of the things that I started to think about a little bit is like race pacing and thinking about, I was a very sort of cautious racer and and, you know, very, uh, I would plan and meticulously. I was never a guy who went out or very rarely a guy who went out way too hard and blew up or anything like that. And I started to think to myself, well, look at the way a lot of Kenyans race if you and, and train for that matter. If you watch them at road races or if, if from, from talking to people who've gone, in, gone to Kenya and trained, it's like there's a very sort of throw caution to the wind approach. They just go out and hang with the leaders as long as they can. And if they blow up, no big deal. They'll try again tomorrow and try and last a little longer. And I thought, you know maybe that would be something that would have been beneficial to me to to be willing to uh, throw caution to the wind more and just kind of take some risks but that's not advice that's good for everyone because there's there are people who you know I have trained with I have friends I've trained with for years who 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 have exactly the opposite problem that they're always uh, overly optimistic and and blowing up halfway through the race they need exactly the opposite advice and same for stuff like should you be using, you know, a GPS watch to monitor your pace during training runs? Well, for some people, that could be exactly what they need to, to, you know, keep them on target, uh, to make sure they don't go too fast or too slow. For other people, it's just sort of feeding into an obsession that's going to make them more neurotic than they already are about their training. So it's any of these principles that we talk about. They're fundamentally, it's not about this is what it, you know everyone should be doing. It's about here's some issues, Uh, like you said, does this apply to you? How does this fit with what your particular limits are, what your particular personality is, what motivates you, what limits you, and things like that. So that becomes a very hard thing to talk about in generalities, and all you can really hope for is to raise interesting issues. Say, here's another factor that can affect performance. What does it mean to you?
0: Yeah, well, let's, yeah, so jumping into that, for the person that's GPS watch oriented, for the person that's splits oriented, for that person... Um, you know, something that's gaining a lot of traction is, uh, Samuel Marcora, uh, you, uh, there's a book by Matt Fitzgerald, How Bad Do You Want It? Perception of effort, right? So, I mean, if, if that athlete, and and this is gaining a lot of traction, and I think rightfully so, what about, you know, going, oh, my my relationship with my perception of effort is a really good uh barometer to use better than a watch better than gps better than hey what's the next guy doing in terms of am i going too hard right now am i going not hard enough i mean what's the so can you talk a little bit about you know that um that theory and that principle that's starting to gain a lot of traction in terms of how we can use that to actually oh this is you know you know the, the 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 porridge is just right. It's not too hot. It's not too cold.
1: Yeah. So just to give so give a little context, the, the the sort of over the last twenty years, the big shift I think in thinking has been that okay, you know, you go and run a race. It's not fundamentally you don't you don't slow down in a race because your heart can't beat any faster or because your legs can't move anymore. It's your brain that's ultimately calling the shots. And there have been a number of different theories, things like the central governor theory, uh, which is the idea that. Your brain is, has some sort of, basically, a circuit breaker that prevents you from getting too close to your limits because it would be dangerous. But the, the most recent sort of iteration is from Samuel Marcora, what he calls the psychobiological theory, which is basically that you slow down in a race because it's it's too hard. Your sense of it's based on your sense of effort. When your sense of effort maxes out or reaches the the highest you're willing to to tolerate, that's that's when you slow down. And that's a fundamental shift because it means all that really matters is how hard your effort feels, uh, you know, and which will depend on all the, all the physical things. Um, Now, what that implies is that it's really important to be able to tune into how hard an effort feels, because that's what's going to determine whether you slow down or whether you speed up. And that's going to be the most accurate uh, indicator of how hard you're working and whether you can sustain it to the finish line. And so I think, I think it's, it's really important. And, and, you know, when they do studies, it's like, okay, they're, they're quantifying effort on a scale of 1 to 10 or 6 to 20. There's various different ways of doing it. And they basically ask, how hard does this feel? And you put a number to it. Now, for training purposes, that could be useful. If you're keeping a training log, how hard was that run today? 6 out of 10. How hard was that run to? Oh, well, I did that same run three weeks ago, and it was only a 4 out of 10. Uh, so something's going wrong if I'm doing the same run and it's feeling harder. I need to, you know pay that that can be that in those sort of contexts quantifying your sense of effort and keeping track of it can be a really useful way of seeing whether things are going going right or wrong but even beyond the quantification of it I, i think like in the middle of a workout or in the middle of a race you have to have some understanding of how hard it's supposed to feel and we all do that a little bit unconsciously but i do think like you're you're sort of saying that tendency. there's been a tendency as technology gets better to outsource that decision to say, does my watch, does my heart rate monitor, does my GPS, does it tell me I should be going faster or slower rather than saying, does this feel right? Now, for someone like you or me who, who you know, grew up running in, in, you know, through high school and accrued a lot of experience about what runs are supposed to feel like. That happens intuitively, and so it's it, it, I, one of the things that I have to remember is some of the people that are reading my articles started running a year or two ago, and they're trying to understand how a run should feel, and they don't have a built in intuition for how an easy run should feel compared to how a hard run should feel and so and you know you know in that case, it can be useful to be able to have some heart rate zones or some you know some sort of indicator that says. Yeah. No, really, this is how hard you're supposed to be going. Uh, you don't need technology. You can do that with the talk test. Like, And it's always – I think it's a surprise to a lot of people, especially relatively new runners. It's like, okay, maybe about 80% of your running should be relatively easy. What does easy mean? You should be able to carry on a comfortable conversation during that run. And people are like, really? I can't – You know, when I'm running, I'm always breathing hard. Well, it's like that means you're doing like a tempo run every day. And that's why you're having trouble building up your mileage, because you're doing all of it hard instead of doing it. so you know, these are things you sort of learn naturally if you've come through a competitive setting in, in you know, high school or university. But uh, so again, it's not it's not like technology is always bad or never has a purpose. Uh, some people that can be that can be a really helpful way of dialing into what the right effort level is. But I think the end point should always be that you acquire a feeling for what a hard run should be, what an easy run should be, what a tempo run should be, and what a race on the razor's edge should be because ultimately if you're racing based on your GPS, you have basically decided before the gun even fires how fast you what's the fastest you're going to run that day because you're going to be limiting yourself based on your on, you know, your GPS. Whereas if you can listen to your body and understand right now I'm running at the fastest possible Pace that I can sustain to the finish, then that's going to leave it open that if you're having a good day, if you've if if the stars are aligned right for you, you're going to be able to run faster than you might expect.
0: Yeah, and you know, uh, not to take up too much too much time. Going into stories, but like uh, I think Steve Magnus was talking about at at the conference championships, he had a girl that went – or no, I I guess maybe she was post-collegiate. I don't know. Somebody can fact-check me on this. I think she was running like a a 15K or a 20K or maybe it was 25K, and she went through the halfway point in that race. Like she set a PR for the halfway point and then kept going to smash her PR for the entire distance, And, and again, I mean, like you said, she was on a good day. He talked about the fact that she didn't really have data available. She had no idea what she was doing. Um, And there's somebody that I know. I read it in a book. I can't remember which one, but about the fact that he was running a a mile, I think, one time. And the, the timer was off. And, uh, giving wrong splits and he ended up, you know, that ended up being kind of a breakthrough performance for him. From <laughs> that, that, was, point that, was, forward, that was me. <laughs> he was like, uh, you know, a pretty, uh, a
1: pretty legit miler. So <laughs> yeah, no, no, that, um, that, for that, those that was...
0: of you, for those of you that haven't read the book, that that's one of the stories in Alex's book is the fact that <laughs> you were running, was it in, what was it in France? Is that, am I correct? No, it,
1: it, it was in Quebec. So French part of Canada. And it was, okay. yeah, it was a f- 1500 and the timer turned out to be, he was off by about three seconds, uh, per, li- uh, so <laughs> So I thought I was running this amazing fast time, and so I was like and, – and after a few laps, I was just like, oh, man, this is such a good day. Just stop listening to the splits and go for it, and it was a huge breakthrough for me. And and Steve Magnus actually has a similar story of, like that. He said he, he – I was chatting to him about this, and he, he, he was doing an indoor meet, uh, and there was one heat of the men's mile where – uh, that again, exact same thing happened. That the, the timekeeper started his watch, missed the start basically, and was giving wrong splits to the to the athletes as they as they went through. And he had like four of his five athletes PB'd in that race or something like that by several seconds because they were being told the wrong splits. So I'm not saying this is a performance enhancing strategy. You you, you don't necessarily want to start like uh, asking timekeepers to give the wrong splits, but it definitely. It's it's a reminder that our perception of how hard we're working is often really influenced by these external factors. It's like you hear a split and you're like, oh man, I must be tired if I went through that fast, or or you know, the, or the reverse.
0: Right. Well, I'm I'm a little bit sadistic, man. I, I, I coach cyclists, and one of the things that I've thought about is if I can if I can get into their house at night and I can. Um, calibrate their power meter to where it's reading lower to where like you know they think they're doing 200 watts and and you know they're actually doing 250 like i know that that would probably lead to them just riding and showing power outputs in their files that they didn't think were possible because you know uh, man i've seen it on the start line a guy's guy's power meter is low on battery and it's about to go out and it's not going to last the whole race and the guy's thinking about just going back to the car and not even racing you know, yeah. Uh, but again, you, know, you hear, yeah, and you hear stories of, you know, I, I think, I think some of the Canadians. I don't know if they still do it, but you know, I, I was hearing about, you know, running without watches. I mean, sometimes these guys will just go and run without watches. I know one of the better Canadian cyclists. He actually won the. Oh, how am I going to? He won the Tour de Bost this year, which is a big race up there. Um, you know, James Piccoli. He tells me he goes and rides sometimes, and he doesn't even take any data with him. You know, he just wants to ride because he's totally listening to his body. And I didn't know that we were going to go here during this conversation, honestly. But you know, the the, the funny thing about this is, uh, Alex, I literally just read an article yesterday about the fact that Training Peaks, which is one of the platforms where people upload their workouts and do all that. Guess what they've added? They've added a perception of effort metric that you can now put into your workout so your coach can see. So, you know, kind of based on this point, it's like you go in there and you you let your coach know, hey, you know, today felt like a, like a 7 out of 10. And then you can look back at the week before and go, huh, it felt like a 9 out of 10 last week. So, Wow. Okay, cool. This was, this was a good day. Um, but to kind of dig a little bit deeper into this point and then we'll wrap up is, uh, you know, there, I I think there's, there's two ways to manipulate perception of effort, right? So if that's the thing that's, limiting performance or can can better performance then you know the first way obviously is training you know you can't if you get somebody off the couch that hasn't run and you tell them hey I want you to go run a mile all out their perception of effort is probably going to be higher than the person that's been training and actually preparing for that so you know the first one that everybody knows about is oh hey You know, you just, you got to train, like you've got to be ready to take on the rigor of whatever it is that you want to do. But I think the second one that's starting to get more um, limelight and and I'm glad it is because it's kind of my area is okay, but now that you've, let's just put put a number on it. Now that you've run a mile at five minutes, what I want you to do is the next time you run a mile at five minutes, instead of it being a seven out of 10, I want you to feel like a six out of 10, right? Um, and so how can you do that? Well, the training part plays a factor, but it also plays a factor of, are you in tune with, and are you constantly going back and forth between body and mind and kind of trying to tamp down that perception? So using the technology and seeing a metric, seeing a time, seeing a power output or something like that, but then saying, Hey Mario, I want you to begin thinking less about that number. I want you to think to yourself, that number is not really as big as you're making it out to be lower that perception down. And then, you know, from there you go, okay, well, logically, then I can probably do a 450. So maybe let's go there and see, oh, the 450 is the seven out of 10 that the five minute was, you know, two months ago. Cool. So we're making progress and we're getting stronger. And then to land the plane on this, what's the recipe, right? People are going to be like, okay, well, like how much of it is training? Is it like 50% training, 50% like messing with your perception of effort in terms of your mindset, or is it a 70-30 or this is what I always tell people as a mindset coach. I don't know. I have no idea, but here's what I do know. And and what I like that you guys are doing in the scientific realm is we know that it plays a factor. So therefore we cannot ignore it. We've got to continue to do the work to look for answers to these things, because even if it's a 1% to 99% on this perception of effort thing, that 1% is what maybe gets Kipchoge under two hours, right? So we, we want to address it because we, we know that it does something and we want to just continue to see people do amazing things, right?
1: Yeah, the the, the whole uh, what's the percentage thing is, is, a, is a common question. It's like, exactly. like We don't know the answer and it depends on the context. I would say the physical training part is – like it's not negotiable you can't you can't be you know run, competing to your potential if you haven't done the physical training part but like you said even if it's 99 and 1 um think how hard you work in training to try and get 1% like it's yeah. you know 1% is huge if you can get 1% uh you know and and again if you're someone if you've been on the sofa if you haven't moved from the sofa for the last 10 years and you get up and you want to run 5k you know, then uh, the physical training is going to dominate any other effects you you, you have. But although the mindset is going to be important to make sure you get up off the sofa. But for for anyone who's been training for any amount of time, it's like one percent is pretty hard to get. And that's kind of the to me the the big fundamental thing that comes out of this research into perception of effort and why it matters is that yeah you can change your perception of effort independent of what's going on below your neck. Independent, you can have exactly the same heart rate you can have exactly the same lactate levels you can have exactly the same core temperature all the other physiological things but your perception of effort is still going to depend on factors like what's going on in your head what are you are you telling yourself this is hard i can't do this or are you telling yourself i'm ready for this i've trained for it and it sounds so cheesy but it's and and i was a skeptic for a long time but after going through the research for the book it's like oh no there's actually really good laboratory-based controlled studies that find that what you ask people to think about affects their perception of effort, and since it affects their perception of effort, it affects their endurance performance. So being aware, being conscious of you know your internal monologue, what you're telling yourself, that's like uh, you know, if, if I had a time machine to go back to tell my 20-year-old self how to get better at running, I already knew about running intervals and running mileage. I don't need any more information about that. But the with the piece that I wasn't really tuned into at that point point was this idea of mindset and motivational self talk and trying to minimize perception of effort.
0: Yeah, no, I love it, and you're right. It's simple, and your book your your book brings it to light in a very simple, very readable way. That's not all scientific and talking about all these standard deviations and all this stuff that you know these guys need to obviously do to be able to validate the stuff and say, yeah, there is something there um but you know that that's the problem the the simplicity of it it, very simple right it's like hey just tune into kind of how you feel and and you know mess with that relationship between how you're feeling and how hard you're really going and and it'll be you'll you'll get places but on the back end like you said we don't have the three easy steps so if you can't show me that you know the three easy steps are gonna result like if you can't give me three easy steps that are gonna result in this for a lot of people unfortunately yeah it's really really simple but man since i can't see it i mean i'm not really going to commit to it 100 percent and you know for those folks listening uh you can take it that as a good thing or a bad thing for those of you that are like you know ambitious go-getters motivated you know um you know kind of champions wanting to do great things that's good news for you because guess what you know um the (laughs) there's no crowd in the extra mile you know uh like folks that are like willing to actually go and, and do these kinds of things but, uh, but it's a sore point for those people that are wanting the answers because, guys, we don't really have concrete, this is what you need to do, but we know that it exists. So just kind of taking time to think about it, taking time to ponder it, taking time to educate yourself as much as you can about what's out there right now. Um, you know Taking time to, to talk to people about it and, and kind of learn some more. Uh, and on that note, uh, we're going to wrap up. So uh, the book is called Endure. Uh, and it's mind body and the curious the curiously elastic limits of human performance and that's available everywhere Alex tell me Do you is it still on sale? It was on sale for like three bucks and I was like three bucks. I was like man Okay I mean, I'm happy to give you you know the price <laughs> for it when I bought it because I got the I got the hardcover version I didn't want to get it on a Kindle or, or an audiobook because I actually wanted to physically have it um, But uh, yeah, I mean work can they get it everywhere?
1: Yeah, I think it it should be – I mean, if it's not at your local independent bookstore, they they should be able to order it. And it's certainly available through all the the online retailers and and chains and stuff. Uh, I think that – I think it was supposed to be just a one-day flash sale uh, a couple days ago on on, – for electronic versions for like 3 bucks. And Yeah, it's like – it was great. I was was glad to see lots of people getting it, but I was like, oh, man. I mean, I'm glad some people were paying full price. (laughs) 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 Otherwise, I'm only getting like $0.10 or something. But um, but seriously, uh, you you know, so I – it's worth checking at, you know it may it may go on sale again but I don't think that's going to be the the permanent price.
0: I would I mean, grab it either way, folks. I mean, really, it, it is a really good book. It's gonna get you thinking about the right things. I I I think, you know, that's what it did for me. That's what it's done for folks that I've recommended it to, and they've read. Uh, so there's one one place you can kind of get to know a little bit more about Alex. What are what are some of the other places? Can you go ahead and plug your your blog, uh, your Twitter handle that you're active on, just some of those things, so people can uh, can reach out to you or just follow.
1: Yeah, yeah. So probably the simplest place to find me is on Twitter, uh, my handle there is Sweat Science and anytime I write a new article or see other articles that I'm interested in, I, uh, I, I post it there. So that's that's probably number one stuff. I have a website, uh, alexhutchinson.net that gives a little more background info and older articles. Uh, I do have a, a column once or twice a week on uh, Outside Magazine's website, but you, you can you can find my articles there from uh, from my Twitter feed.
0: Alex, man, thank you so much for, for the time. This was like jam-packed with a bunch of great stuff that I hope the listener can uh, you know, can benefit from. If you guys have any questions or anything like that, I'm sure that Alex would be happy to entertain you on the social media. Um, so thank you guys so much for tuning in. Alex, thanks so much for being on.
1: Thanks, Mario. It was great to have the conversation. Great to reconnect after uh, meeting at a conference a few – I guess it was a couple months ago now. So yeah, great to chat with you. Awesome. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, bye.